Okay, so we're reading Genesis 39. So if you want to get that in your Bibles. Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had bought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him, and he made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. From the time that he made him overseer in his house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in house and field. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge, and because of him he had no concern about anything but the food he ate. Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance, and after a time his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, Lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me my master has no concern about anything in the house, and he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her, to lie beside her or to be with her. But one day when he went into the house to do his work and none of the men of the house was there in the house, she caught him by his garment saying, lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. And as soon as she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and had fled out of the house, she called to the men of her household and said to them, See, he has brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. He came into me to lie with me, and I crowd, cried out with a loud voice. As soon as he heard that I lifted up my voice and cried out, he left his garment beside me and fled and got out of the house. Then she laid up his garment by her until his master came home. And she told him the same story, saying, The Hebrew servant whom you have brought among us came into me to laugh at me. But as soon as I lifted up my voice and cried, he left his garment beside me and fled out of the house. As soon as his master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, this is the way your servant treated me, his anger was kindled. And Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. And he was there in prison. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love, and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge, because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. Thank you, Naomi. Um, before we jump into this story. I just wanted to uh, say another welcome to you all. And um, it really is good, isn't it, to be together in this way and especially enjoy it in August when we have one service and we all get to catch up with all friends we've not seen for a while. I um, wanted to particularly welcome you if you're new and just let you know um, that one of our strongest priorities as a church is we, we, we very much want to pursue being a real family, a real community in the heart of the city. And uh, part of the way that we seek to make that happen 
is uh, meeting not only on Sundays as consistently as possible, but also midweek in homes um, which meet all around the, um, all over London. Now, most of those groups are taking a, a break during August, but we, we would love to connect you with um, some leaders before September kicks off and the groups um, begin gathering again. So if you're interested in, in uh, connecting with the church in that way, please leave us your details. There's cards on the seat so you can, um, you can visit um, the website. There's an I don't know the link. There's an I'm new page somewhere. Um, is it on the screen? It's not. Never mind. Um, it's, it, actually, I think the web, the web address is on. You can, there's a QR code even on the cards on your seat, so you can use that. And uh, we'll, we'll get in touch with you and make sure that you know um, uh, where you can go and meet the right people. All right. I want to, I want to um, open up the second episode in the life of Joseph we began last week. And just to briefly orient you with what's gone on in his story so far. We meet him as a 17-year-old boy, pretty precocious, arrogant, the 11th son in a family with 12 boys. And so some of his brothers are much, much older than him, probably decades older than him. And uh, he's not much loved. He's, you know, he wears his confidence out there. He's his father's favorite son. And as a result, the brothers plot and in their despising of him, they sell him into slavery. They take an opportunity to sell him to some traveling traders who take him down from the land of Canaan all the way down into Egypt and sell him into slavery down there. And this is where we pick up the story. Here he is in the house of a powerful man called Potiphar. And initially, it seems like things are going well for him there. Despite all expectations, he seems to have landed on his feet until, of course, Potiphar's wife takes a fancy to him. And before long, his story has descended into, into deeper tragedy than it even was. So not only has he been sold into slavery, but now he's found himself a victim of injustice. And, and he's descended all the way into an Egyptian prison, which, as you could imagine, must be a very dark and difficult place to have lived at the time. Now, what's it about? The story of this man's life, I, as I said last week, is not so much about him. It is about him, but more importantly, it's about God, about the sovereignty of God, about the providence of God, and that he is directing his steps through every stage of the life of this young man to bring about his greater ends and purposes in and through the life of this man. And I believe that in studying stories like this, what we discover is not so much just the lessons of a life lived well, but also the intent and purpose and the plan of the living God who is as much in control of our steps as he was of Joseph's steps. And so we see Joseph in moments of experiencing the favor and blessing of God and then descending into tragic circumstances. And in every moment, you see God directing the whole thing. It seems to me that this is one of the greatest lessons a Christian must learn, must understand, must believe that God is in control. So when we come to this particular story of what's just taken place in this second episode in his life, what do we see happening here? I want you to, to recall the great plan that God had for Joseph. He spoke to him in dreams. And Joseph had this inkling, this belief, this understanding that he was called to some kind of leadership, rule and authority. And so t- chosen as a 17-year-old boy, for a specific purpose within the plan of God, God sets to work in his life. And it seems to me that this has extraordinary importance to us as Christians. Partly because 
As I remind you, in Ephesians 1, we're told that every one of us has been called, predestined in Christ, called individually and by name to be part of God's family, to be adopted into his family. But not only that, but God has called you for certain good works that he prepared beforehand, it says in Ephesians 2, for you to walk in them. Now, if we take that literally as we ought to, what it means is that God called you individually when he called you to be part of his family and that he has a very specific purpose for your life. We might use the language of destiny, of the sovereignty and the providence of God that is there in your life. So when you're reading a story like Joseph's, I don't think that you're meant to distance yourself from him and just think this is just a very unique story. It is unique, of course. But I think we're meant to understand the work and the ways of the living God and what he does when he takes hold of individuals and how he begins to shape and form you for the purposes to which he's calling you. So that when you read a story like this, you ask, what's it about? Think about the episodes that are taking place. The first is God has called him. But now what is it that God must do in the life of Joseph? And I think the answer is this, that God now sets to work in forming and shaping and training and discipling him for the purposes to which he has destined him. I remember some years ago seeing a documentary about the elite fighting force that is the U.S. Marines. And before you become a Marine, you enter into boot camp. A boot camp, day one, they strip you of everything that was your own possession, your clothes and so on, and they shave your head. In order to, every recruit, the men and the women, every one of them is shaved in order to kind of strip them of their identity. And then they enter into the most grueling process that lasts a number of weeks in which not all of them will succeed and make it through onto the parade ground to be welcomed in as U.S. Marines. But that process transforms those people, those men and women who are entering into that force and their bodies are transformed before your eyes. They go from a kind of slouching um, posture with little pot bellies to upright flat stomachs broad shoulders and ready to be a lethal fighting force and so you see something like that happening in Joseph's life stripped of everything that he was his identity as a Hebrew dwelling in his father's house like a marine his head shaved as it were and then immediately he's launched into this experience of the brutal training that God allowed him to experience over weeks or months or years, in which he is formed and fashioned and shaped for the purposes to which he called him. And it's my conviction that, in a sense, that is a pattern which God puts in front of every person who is part of his family. You don't come into this world ready formed and ready made, do you? But God sets to work. It's what discipleship is. And this is vital to understand. When you become a Christian, the first thing you desire is the will of God. There's a yes in your heart to respond to God. And if that yes isn't there, you are not a Christian. If you haven't got a fundamental desire to obey Jesus and to follow him, you are not a Christian, brother or sister. You must know that and understand that. I'm not saying that you have to follow him perfectly, but that is the, the most fundamental inclination of the Christian heart, to say yes to him. Then to submit to the will of God in your life, and he'll take you places that you didn't dream of and perhaps would never have designed for yourself. But also, you're going to experience something of what Joseph goes through, that you'll be trained and formed and fashioned in order that God can do something in your life here in this life before you go on to see Jesus after you die. 
This becomes clear when you read the New Testament. I think particularly of a passage like this one in Hebrews 12, where it says, For the moment all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. That word trained is a Greek word from which we derive the word gymnasium. It literally comes out of the sporting arena. I I want to reassure you I'm going to avoid every reference to the Olympics today. As much as I'm speaking about training and it it would suggest itself to me constantly, I think it would just be a little boring for us all. But the the point is there, that God enters you into his kind of athletic school of training in order to shape you and form you and and strengthen your sinews and your muscles, spiritually speaking, so that you can do something for him in this life. A Christian who remains infantile or flabby or underdeveloped is a tragedy in my view, given that God has left us here on earth for purpose. And this is exactly what we're seeing in Joseph's life. So then the question comes, well, how does God shape us? And what is it that he's seeking to form within the life of Joseph? And I want to show you three things that seem to occur to me from this passage that God is is shaping and forming within him that are all preparation for what is to come. The first is this, that God enters him into training for leadership. Now I want you to recall what it is that God spoke over him. How he said to him that in the dreams, the images that he had, that his destiny was to have authority under God's hand. But yet he was young, he was spoiled, he was arrogant, he was totally ill-equipped and ill-prepared for that calling. The proof of that, of course, is the fact that his own brothers hate him. I know many people have dreams of leadership in their life, but a leader has to be evidencing the fact that others will follow them, right? And in Joseph's case, that clearly was not true. On the contrary, he was rejected by everybody, despised by his own brothers. Yet the call and the promise of God hung over his life. So what does God do? How do we see God preparing him for leadership? In this story, you see a number of things immediately at the start of the chapter that immediately suggest what God is doing in his life. One is that he sovereignly ordains his steps. It tells us in the first verse that he'd been brought down to Egypt and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the God, an Egyptian, had brought him. Now this will only become apparent with hindsight how significant this moment is in Joseph's life. Here he is in the household of a powerful man in Egypt. He could have ended up anywhere. He could have ended up building some of these great Egyptian structures and just died a death somewhere. But instead, God puts him in a place which is the perfect training ground for everything that he is to do later in his life. This is a sovereign hand of God. And I'll draw your attention to that fact because, listen, Christian, your situation is never an accident. You might worry about why is it that I am where I am? Where is God in all this? God is entirely in control. You see this, the sovereign hand of God putting him there. Then you begin to see something of the blessing of God on his life. How it tells us that the Lord was with Joseph and he became a successful man. His master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hand. Now this is a phenomenon that we see all through the Bible. That God doesn't only ordain your steps and put you where you are. He also gives you the specific gifts that you are able to use for his purposes. 
And this isn't just what we see in the New Testament described as spiritual gifts, which we often think of as just these kind of supernatural things. All the way through the Bible, the gifting of God, the favor of God manifests in very practical, physical, ordinary, day-to-day ways. My favorite account of this is in the book of Exodus, where we see Bezalel and Aholiab, two men who it says were full of the Spirit and gifted with all skill and craftsmanship so that they could build the tabernacle. In other words, they had what we today would describe as blue-collar jobs, working with metal and wood and tapestry and all these things, yet it was the Holy Spirit that anointed them and blessed them and prepared them for that specific calling. And this seems to me to be true of every single person under God's hand. God has given you very specific gifts and graces to accomplish what he has prepared you for in this life. So God sovereignly ordains his steps and then blesses him in terms of the specific gifts and skills that he's equipped with. And then God begins to open doors. There's favor on his life. And you see how it says that Potiphar saw that the Lord was with him. It says he found favor in his sight and attended him. So much so that Potiphar, it says, didn't worry about anything except the food he ate. That was all he gave thought to. He was one of those men who went out to work and when he came home, the only thing he was interested in was what was on the dinner plate because everything else was taken care of by this man Joseph who became his household manager within his house. And what's the result of all this? Now, I want you to think carefully, what is God doing here? You can think of it externally. And the fact is that on the outside, what we're seeing here is God blessing him with favor and success. And that's certainly true. But I, I tell you, friend, that is not the most important thing about what's going on in Joseph's life here. God gives that. He can also and does, in fact, take it away. That is entirely the gift of God's grace. What's more interesting here is what God is doing within the heart of this young man. This is where it really comes home to us as God's people, as God's children. God is shaping Joseph on the inside. What is it that God is interested in forming within him in this training for leadership? And if there's one word that it seems to me to kind of summarize what you're beginning to see develop and form within the life of this man, it's the word integrity. What is integrity? Integrity is, it can, it, it, a synonym, synonym of integrity is wholeness. The word integrity means that there is a consistency in you from outside to in, you are the same person. It means there's a complete absence of hypocrisy. It means there's a kind of simplicity to you rather than duplicity. Duplicity means you're made up of various parts and certain parts of you are hidden from sight and only emerge in certain contexts. Integrity is a total consistency from the outside all the way through to the inside. Think about if you were to buy a, um, a used car. I bought, I've had four used cars in my life up to now, including the one we now drive. And the, the worst nightmare in purchasing a car is that there is something about this car you don't know. And one thing that's been known to happen is a wily garage or dealer might take two wrecked cars, one that had a crash in the front, one that had a crash in the rear, cut them in half, and then, assuming they're the same model, weld them together, you know, kind of paint over the cracks, and you end up with a car that looks like something perfectly good, but is actually just a concoction of various pieces of old car put together into one. The right word to use of that is that that car lacks integrity. 
It's made up of parts. It's not one. It's not whole. And it is not safe. You think about, as well, in structural terms. You talk about structural integrity, which, as I understand it, simply means that there's a oneness and a wholeness. There's no parts or cracks or divisions that could cause the whole thing to collapse and to fall apart. And this is something like what God wants to bring about in the life of every one of his people. When you become a Christian, you're aware of all kinds of conflicting desires and passions within your heart. Passions that wage war against the voice of the Holy Spirit and against the word of God. And this is a, this is a war for your very soul. But as you are putting to death the flesh, is what it says in Romans, uh, uh, in the book of Romans in chapter 14, as you're putting to death the flesh, as you're, as you're walking in the spirit, God begins to shape and form in you an alignment to his purposes and to his will so that you become a person of integrity. Christ, you recall from the sermons that he preached in which he He laid into the religious elite of his day. His greatest and most pressing and most important critique of them was their hypocrisy. He described them as whitewashed tombs. In other words, that they were like graves. White and painted on the outside, but inside full of decay and rottenness. Disgusting. And Jesus absolutely wants to eliminate this from our lives. It's it's not that we will attain perfection in this life. But that God is bringing about integrity within the lives of his children and this is something like what we're seeing in the life of joseph here god himself by the way is a god marked by perfect integrity the theologians use a technical term they speak of the simplicity of god what that means is that he has no parts he has no divisions he is the same through and through he is entirely loving there's no conflict between love and something else. He's entirely just. He's entirely good. He's entirely perfect. God is God. God is simple. God is totally full of integrity. And he wants to form something like that in you and me. And this is where I see this in the life of Joseph is this, in this way. That here he is, coming into the service of this Egyptian master, and earning very quickly the trust of this man, Because he promotes him from being a slave to being the CEO of the household. It's like one of these stories of someone going into work on the checkout at Tesco and ending up managing a store. He promoted from slave to CEO because Potiphar looks at him and says he's diligent, he's wise, he's honest, he's responsible, he is perfectly dependable. And friend, that to me is a Christ-like trait. It's something that God wants to shape in you. But even more important than just the fact that he becomes trustworthy is this remarkable truth about this man. It's that he is trustworthy in every and all circumstances. You see, many of us will perform if the conditions are right. The pay is right, promotions are right, the opportunities, recognition, all these kinds of things fall into place. The difference with Joseph was that here is a man who, whether he's in Potiphar's house or at the end of the chapter when he's in prison, you see the same theme running through his life. He is the same man in both of these circumstances. He has perfect integrity in both of these situations. Here's what Derek Kidner said about him. He's a theologian, the Old Testament theologian. He said, Joseph's outstanding abilities and integrity, crowned with the touch of God, were constant at every level as prisoner and as governor. He was simply the same man. 
Now, it seems to me that this is something that Jesus wants every one of us to exhibit in our own lives. Let me just read to you a couple of verses from the New Testament that describe this. Paul says, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. Knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. And if I can translate that for you, it's my conviction that a Christian should be the best person wherever they are. Whether you're at home as a spouse or, or as a, a father or a mother or as a friend or in the workplace, wherever you are, a Christian should be the person who is most dependable in that situation. That's the Christ-like way. When we are walking in Christ's steps in this way, the Lord Jesus can open up all kinds of opportunities in the way that he does in the life of Joseph. This, by the way, was, was never guaranteed. Here's a man betrayed by his brothers. And you might think that his thoughts would be that he'd be betrayed by his own God. But the very opposite seems to be true in his own understanding and heart. He knows that he lives a life under the hand of the living God. And where he is, He's completely living for God's glory and to bring pleasure to the God who made him. And therefore we see him equipped and shaped and formed for greater and greater and greater responsibility as his life moves on. Is that what, is that, would that be your response in this situation? Those whom God wants to train for leadership must be formed in this way of integrity. Now let me show you a second thing that I see going on here. It's related, but it's also slightly different. Is the fact that Jesus, or I should say the living God, is training him in holiness. Now consider the tests that Joseph has to endure. He's been tested in hardship and suffering, hasn't he? And let, do not be under any illusion. His experience of entering into slavery was an experience of pain, of brutality of suffering. But there's another test that presents itself to Joseph here in his story, isn't there? Which God allows him to be exposed to and to experience. And it's the test of pleasure. The test of seduction. He's a woman. Joseph, remember, is in his late teens. Hot-blooded young man. A virgin. And here's a very willing woman offering herself to him. Now, I want you to step back from that for a moment. Just ask this question. Why, why does his holiness matter? One of the things that we consistently seem to be told in our day and age is that it doesn't matter. That your private life is entirely irrelevant to your public duties. And so time and again, our newspapers are... are, uh, are Glad to splash in front of us the kind of lascivious news of another public person who's made some grievous kind of error in terms of adultery or cheating or whatever. But always the answer comes, especially if they're in leadership, perhaps in politics, always the answer comes that their private life has no bearing upon the public duties. Because, of course, if you cheat in private, you'll never cheat in public, will you? If you're unfaithful in private, 
you know, we can, we can perfectly expect you to be trustworthy and faithful in, pu- in public, right? That's the myth that we're supposed to buy into here. The Christian has to understand there is no division between public and private. God sees everything. And not only does he see it, but he's, what is it that God is most interested in your life? He's interested in your holiness. I read at the start of the service, Psalm 24, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. What God is wanting to form a fashion within his people is clean hands and a pure heart. Your deeds and your intentions and desires. The Lord Jesus said it on the Sermon on the Mount when he said, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. In Hebrews 12, when he's talking about this discipline, this training that God exposes us to, he says, Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. The Christian does not for a second buy into this lie that what you are in private is irrelevant to what you are in public. God is interested. And this isn't just true for those of you who aspire to work within so-called Christian ministry. This is true for every single one of you. In every performance of your duties in life, wherever you are, God is as interested in your private as he is interested in your public life. He wants this integrity to run through from the outside to the inside. The proof, of course, of that is that God paid the ultimate price to make you holy when he gave his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to pay for your sin on the cross. Never doubt that God's greatest desire for you is to form a heart of holiness. So the question then is, well, if that was what God was seeking to form in Joseph, how was he able to resist temptation and pass this particular test? And I want to show you three tactics that he used when offered sex for free with his boss's wife. Let me show you three things he did. The first is this. Do not underestimate this, friends. He made a decision. I think one of the greatest dangers that Christians enter into when they're seeking to, when when they're faced with temptation, is you enter into discussion and debate, if only in your own mind. It didn't go so well for Eve when she started discussing the issue of the fruit with the snake, right? The point being that Satan can always outsmart you when you're rationalizing. And it seems more often than not that when a Christian starts asking the question, why not? It's because they've already begun to dip their toe in the water. Temptation's already begun to take root in your heart. And so I want you to understand that the first thing that Joseph does when he's confronted with this opportunity for no strings attached sex with this woman is he puts up a wall, a resolute wall of defiance in that he knows who he is and what righteousness is in that situation. Look again at what he says in verse 8 to 10. He says he refused. There's the word. He refused and said to his master's wife. It wasn't just that he made a decision, but that he bolstered his decision like you might build a wall by digging the foundations deep and building it wide and tall. He bolstered his decision with the reasons that he knew were right within, in God. He says this. 
He refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house. He's put everything that he has in my charge. He's not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? In other words, Joseph is motivated by a sense of duty to the boss who's been good to him, but more importantly, by the the knowledge that he lives under the sight of the living God. How can I do this sin and sin against God? Do you remember how, how David echoes those words in Psalm 51 after, after he's committed adultery with Bathsheba? And he says, Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Which is to say that even when you wrong others in this life, the deeper problem, the deeper issue, is that you've always sinned against the God who made you, whose law you've transgressed. Joseph says no. And not just verbally to her, he says no in his heart. Some of you are struggling with a particular sin even now. Or a temptation. You find yourself constantly wrestling with it. And one of the reasons why it continues in your life is because you won't say no. Part of you wants to succumb. Say no. Make a decision. Choose whom you're going to serve. He made a decision. The second tactic he employed here was this. He then avoided temptation. Now listen carefully to what I'm saying. I did not say he avoided sinning. This is even before the sin. He avoided the temptation. We know that temptation in and of itself is not something that you're guilty of. Temptation does not mean that you're guilty. Martin Luther put it like this. He said, you can stop the birds landing on your head, but you can't stop them flying over you. In other words, you're going to be exposed to temptations in this life. But there is a duty in everyone who wants to live for Christ and wants to live a holy life. As Joseph is beginning to express and discover and explore what it is to live a holy life. That you not only say no to sin, but then you avoid the occasions of temptation that lead you into sin in the first place. Now we see this going on in Joseph's life because what happens? After he's refused this woman, it says as she spoke... And as she spoke to Joseph, day after day, day after day, so having once made a decision not to sleep with her, she is trying to wear him down. It seems to me that this is always a pattern that can erode even resolute believers. Chipping away, just inch by inch, little by little, until your resolve weakens and your decisions begin to crumble. And then you give way to the sin which you thought at one stage was impossible for you to commit. How humbling that experience can be. But what does Joseph do? It says he would not listen to her, to lie beside her, or to be with her. Can you see how he's employing every weapon in his arsenal to distance himself from the very temptation? He won't listen to her. I don't know whether he literally put his fingers in his ears and went la 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 la. He won't lie beside her. What a fool. You are when you, when you put yourself in a position where you know it's almost inevitable now you're going to sin. He won't lie beside her because he knows if he does, the game's over. More importantly, he says... He wouldn't be with her. 
He physically extricates himself from her presence and avoids her. He somehow had to go around his daily duties, managing this household with multiple employees and complex business arrangements, watching out for this woman and steering a wide berth away from her wherever she was. It must have been comical at times to watch Joseph go about his daily business, sort of edging his way around the house, trying to make sure he's nowhere near this woman. But he does it because it's the right thing to do. Now, friends, so many times you can get caught out by a failure to put this into effect in your own life. But don't forget what Jesus said, particularly when it comes to sexual sin and temptation. He said it in Matthew 5 when he talked about lust. He said, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it's better for you to lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. Jesus wasn't saying that maiming yourself is uh, in any sense a good or desirable outcome except insofar as it enables you to avoid the more tragic outcome of losing your soul. That's what Joseph does here. He begins to maim himself in a metaphorical sense, gouging out his eye, cutting off his hand, making sure he is not in the presence of this person who is trying to wear him down and seduce him into sin. The book of Proverbs also echoes this advice. I love the early chapters of Proverbs, the first 10 chapters that are our father just pouring out wisdom to his son. And one way in which he is most earnest is to to instruct his son in how not to fall into sexual sin. And he says to his son, be attentive to my wisdom. He talks about the forbidden woman whose, lips, whose, whose uh, lips drip honey and speech is smoother than oil. In other words, as soon as you're listening, it begins to seduce your heart. And what does he say to his son? He says, listen to me. Do not depart from the words of my mouth. Keep your way far from her and do not go near the door of her house. It's not enough just to decide that you're not going to sin. Don't even go near the opportunity to sin. Now let me show you one last tactic that he used here. He decided. He avoided temptation. Then when it came down to it, what does he do? He fled. I love this account. How much grief could have been... Uh, could have been prevented in the history of the scriptures, various men of God who failed to run away when the opportunity presented itself. But Joseph did the right thing. It tells us that the woman caught him alone one day through no fault of his own. One day it says when he went into the house to do his work and none of the men of the house was there in the house, she caught him by his garment saying, lie with me. I don't know how electric that contact must have felt to him in that moment to be touched by this powerful and seductive woman. Lie with me. But it says, but he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. So so determined was he to get out of that situation that his clothes were ripped off him 
as he removed himself physically from her presence at great speed and with aggression. Think what he does not do here. He doesn't pause. He doesn't talk to her. He doesn't enter into a a moment of discussion and debate. He doesn't even try to resist her. He simply runs away. And again, this is something that is echoed, particularly when it comes to sexual sin and temptation, which I think is worth highlighting, by the way, because I think it is one of the most destructive patterns of sin that any of us could fall into, that robs individuals of the grace and glory of God that God wants to crown them with in this life. But the New Testament tells us on so many occasions, no doubt inspired by what Joseph does here, to run away from sexual temptation. Think about what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6. He says, flee from sexual immorality. Not stand and fight, flee. Every other sin, he says, a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have, whom you have from God? You're a temple of the Spirit. God's great presence is inside you, child of God. He says, you are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. To me, this is one of the most precious and powerful lines in all of Scripture. Why can't I sin? Because I don't belong to me anymore. I belong to Christ, who has redeemed me at the cost of his own blood, and I do not get to make these decisions for myself anymore. Christ owns me. Flee from sexual immorality, he says. It bears repeating, because in the very same letter, he says it again to the same people. In 1 Corinthians 10, he says to them again in verse 8, We must not indulge in sexual immorality. And he goes on and says a little bit later in that same verse, he says, therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that's not common to man. God is faithful. He'll not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he'll also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. It's a remarkable thing. But what Paul's saying there is this. Whenever you find yourself in a situation of temptation, you'll also notice that there's an opportunity to run away. And the decision often occurs in a fraction of a second whether you'll run or not. But he says, make no mistake, there is no temptation that's common to man that's overtaken you that's not common to man, I should say. And that God is faithful, he'll always provide a way of escape. In other words, it's never inevitable that you should fall into sin. God always gives you an escape hatch. The only question is whether you'll choose the way out or not in that moment. Paul tells his protege, Timothy, who at this point is a pastor. He says, flee youthful passions. That word passions means lusts and it's usually associated with sexual sin. Flee them, run away from them and pursue righteousness. You don't run away always looking back, thinking about what you're running away from. You run directly to something better. Pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, he says. So can you see, friends, what it is that God is doing in the life of this young man, this 17-year-old boy? In order to prepare him 
for the greatness which is hanging over him, the calling and the duty and the sacrifice and the service that he'll offer to God in his life, God puts him into this school of training. Training in integrity, training then in holiness. And there's one last thing I want to draw your attention to, what he does in him here. He trains him in faith. Ask yourself, what is Joseph's greatest danger to the experiences that he endures in Egypt? It's not that he'll fail the test of integrity as a leader and not be good at his job. It's not that necessarily even that he'll fall into sin. These would be bad things, but they're not irreversible things. The greatest test that he faces is that he'll abandon the God who he knows and loves. That's the very foundation of Joseph's whole life. And if that foundation crumbles, everything else is lost. And it seems to me that God puts him into the hardest of circumstances in order to test whether the metal is real. Whether his faith is there. Whether it's true. God will do that in you too, friend. Sometimes he does it by exposing you to pain, injustice, hardship, frustration, suffering. And in that moment, you will ask the question, is God good and does he love me? And when the doubt begins to take root in your heart, at that point, you're on your way of abandoning him. God will also allow you to be confronted with temptations, seductions, pleasures that you know are illicit. And in that moment, you will ask the exact same question. You'll ask, is God good? Because if he was good, he'd let me have this. I've seen far too many Christians, even in this church, stumble at this point. It presents as, oh, I've got all these questions and doubts about my faith. You know, did Jesus really rise from the dead? You know, was he the son of God? All this, But really what's going on is a battle with some great seduction, and usually in the area of sexual temptation. And maybe also the battle's already been lost at that point. Then some retroactive work takes place to then rebuild your your way of thinking in order to justify your actions. Well, God's not real, and Jesus didn't really die on the cross for my sins. But it all began to unravel because you gave in. We ask the question, is God good? Whether in the face of suffering or in the face of seduction, and that doubt, the enemy's doubt, the doubt that the enemy sowed in the Garden of Eden with Eve and Adam, is the doubt which unravels your faith. Because the second you stop trusting that God is good and that he's for you, your faith collapses. You can no longer face suffering and you can no longer face seduction. Seems to me that Joseph passed this test though. You see how even though he experiences disaster after disaster in his life, sold into slavery, then in the injustice of prison, a victim of injustice, what does he do? He continues to walk with God. We're told twice at the end of this chapter that God was with Joseph. He didn't wander astray. He knew the presence of God in his life, even in the darkest hour. And then think about how he faced down temptation. One author put it like this. He said he had every reason to be angry, bitter, resentful, cynical, fearful, self-serving, and self-pitying. We've all been there, right? 
said he had every human reason to find fleeting solace in an illicit embrace. Frankly, to act out. When a Christian is feeling sorry for themselves, that is when they are most prone to fall into sin. Joseph's example can give you hope in your circumstances. God lets you face these hardships in order to harden and toughen the faith that will sustain you through greater challenges in the days and years to come. Think about this negatively. What happens if you don't face challenge and hardship in life? The answer is you end up flabby and weak. When astronauts go into space, even if it's just for one week or a couple of weeks, never mind for a year, what happens is their muscles begin to atrophy. They begin to shrink and weaken. Coming back down to earth can be a great shock. In a sense, when you don't face these challenges in life, whether it's suffering or seduction, your muscles, your faith, your trust in God will be atrophied. But to turn this positively, when God exposes you to these kinds of trials and you move through them with faith, with trust in God, God strengthens you and prepares you for deeper and greater things in the, in the days and years to come. Do you remember how about three years ago there was a disaster that took place and uh, unfolded in Thailand when a dozen or so boys decided to uh, park their bicycles outside one of those natural caves and go caving down into the dark heart of the earth. And when they're down in these caves, there was a flood. The rains fell and the caves were flooded and they were trapped inside a pocket of air deep in the belly of the, gr- of the ground. It's a, it's a thing of nightmares, isn't it? Totally silent, cold, dark, moist, and airless environment. Now, the world set to action. It happened to be the case that within Thailand, they didn't have the expertise to effect a rescue. But individuals were called in from all around the world. Special forces in the U.S., British, professional divers. These individuals were called together for the task of searching for them. And they went down into the heart of the earth and found these boys. What was it that prepared them for that rescue effort? And the answer is that these, these men had been toughened by countless thousands of hours of testing their own resolve in tighter and tighter spaces, darker and darker places, testing their kit and their own resolve to the limits. So that when the real trial came and the boys needed a rescue, they were ready. These experts, these professionals were ready. They'd done it before. They'd done something like this before, even if they'd not done this before. And this is what's going on in the life of Joseph. He's passing through deeper and darker successive trials in his life, experiencing the pain of injustice, experiencing the seduction of temptation, and learning to cling to God by faith so that his faith is proved and tested to be of more worth than gold, as Peter puts it in 1 Peter 1. You go through the fire to test your faith. Which means that when he has to trust God to the maximum, we might say, later in life, the man is prepared. In this way, he resembles our own Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. The book of Hebrews tells us about Jesus. 
tells us to run with endurance. I'm avoiding the temptation of the obvious analogy here again. Run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who, for the joy set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. In other words, what the book of Hebrews is telling us is this. How did the Lord Jesus Christ triumph? By going through the cross and then being raised from the dead to be seated at the right hand of the Father. And the answer is he triumphed by his faith. He endured by faith. It was for the joy set before him, believing the Father is good, that he was able to endure the cross and be the pioneer of our faith, the one who goes before us. And every Christian is to walk in his steps. Christ has called you to live a life of faith, ultimately to cling to him, to trust in his death on the cross to make you clean, and the promises that accompany that of eternal life with him and the rewards that God wants to give you. And what does he ask for you now? He asks for your faith. He asks for you to continue to trust him. So that when you face hardship, you don't sink into the pit of despair and self-pity in which you ask yourself, does God love me? So that when you face seduction, you don't rationalize and think, well, God's withholding from me. So that you walk the path in which God, you cling to the promises of God, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of your faith. Which is why in the very next verses of Hebrews, it says, consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted, in your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. He's saying to those Christians, friends, come on, you can go in for another round. Don't give up. You've not even been battered and bloodied yet. Go for another round. Face off against the devil. Face off against the temptation to walk away, to abandon your faith. Endure by fixing your eyes on your Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ who went before you. He's the pioneer. You're just following in his steps. I want to invite you to pray with me. Please do bow your head, close your eyes, and let's have dealings with the Lord God even now. Father, in this room, I recognize that there, are, there is a, a vast spectrum of maturity and development in the faith from those who, Lord, have not yet even decided to follow you, who are weighing up whether it's worth it. Lord, help them to see the greatness of God and the wonder of following Jesus. For those, Lord, who are limping, been battered and bloodied by these very kinds of trials. The frustration of suffering, of perceived injustices, or of seduction, of temptation. Lord, whose faith has worn thin and perhaps been cracked and tested to the very limit and almost broken. I pray, Lord, that as we look at the life of this young man, this Joseph, Lord, as we look beyond him to the Savior, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. I pray, Lord, that you will bring deliverance from despair. Deliverance from limping and weakness. Deliverance from self-pity. 
and resentment, deliverance from the temptations in which we're stuck, those sticky web of temptations, Lord, that trap us. And bring us, Lord, onto a level footing where we can see Christ, where we can know what it is that we're called to be and do as his children, where we can resolve even in a fresh way today to cling to you by faith, to walk the path that you called for us, so that, Lord, this, this body, this church, these people might be prepared for the things that you would call them to in future. So that you might put your hand on men and women here. As the scriptures say, the eyes of the Lord roam to and fro throughout all the earth looking for those whose hearts are set on him. Look at this people, Lord, and find those whose hearts are set on you so that you can show them strong support and use them for your glory. Don't let us be immature, infantile believers, Lord, who never progress beyond just drinking milk like babies. Let us be those, Lord, who are strengthened by the grace of God to accomplish great things for God, to walk in the works that you prepared beforehand, before the foundation of the world for us, that we might walk in them. I pray these things in the precious name of the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen.